Hello, Thought Bubble listeners. It's Dave. Uh, this week we recorded an extra long episode of the Thought Bubble uh, that covered a whole bunch of things. So long, as a matter of fact, I realized that we talked about all the DC stuff up front and all the Marvel stuff in the back, so I have split the show into two episodes. Um, where you'll be getting the part two later this week, uh, but this episode is just going to cover DC Rebirth, DC Films, Preacher the show and the CW shows uh, that came to a conclusion uh, earlier this month. Uh, Next part will include uh, bits on Captain America and what happened to him in the comics, uh, our in-depth look at X-Men Apocalypse, and some spoilerific thoughts on Thor Ragnarok. But that's just a tease. There's still a full Thought Bubble episode coming up right now. Boys and girls, your attention please. Presenting a new exciting radio program, faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, impervious to bullets. Hello and welcome to The Thought Bubble, a podcast about comics and comics-adjacent culture. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're here to answer your questions about all things comics. Dave here is our so-called expert, and I'm your friendly neighborhood novice. But this podcast is meant for comics lovers of all levels. If Dave wants to go in-depth or spoilery about a particular answer, he'll do so in our advanced section that comes at the end of each episode with ample warning. So don't worry. If you have a question for us, please shoot us an email at bubbleyourthoughts at gmail.com. You can find all of our old episodes at fightinginthewarroom.com slash comics. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. It's Sunday, May 29th. This is issue 41. How are you, Dave? I'm doing pretty good. It's Sunday. Sunday podcasting. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And we are living in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, We are here to talk about X-Men colon apocalypse we also want to talk about preacher and amc what's going on with captain america what's going on with the flash and i suppose arrow what's going on with preacher and what's going on with thor ragnarok so we have a lot to get through we just thought we'd do this extra super special sunday thought bubble for all of you um let's kick off with dc rebirth which is a big actual comic book book thing and we have a question from mike from riverside and he says i know y'all don't really talk dc comics with the state of things honestly why would you and you just did one um on top of being busy people but dc universe colon rebirth number one comes out this week and like a bunch of spoilers came out and i'm just super curious to hear joanna's reaction to it i don't know why he wants my reaction to it because all of my information comes directly from dave so dave what should we know about rebirth oh man okay i'm gonna frame this in a interesting discussion I've been having with myself and my Marvel comic book loving friends. I think I might try to switch major publishing houses for a little bit because I really am enjoying what they're doing with DC Rebirth. Um, uh, Basically, spoilers for issue number one, but you could go get it right now, so maybe go get it right now. I think it's really good. It's a multi-part story about Wally West, old Wally West um, costume with like the yellow but definitely a Flashpoint, a Wally West that existed in the DC universe up until Flashpoint, uh, but has not existed in the new 52 where Wally West is a young black man. Um, He's in the Speed Force and he's trying to, he's dipping into the new 52 trying to get people to remember him and everything that he sees feels wrong and it feels dark and like people like the Black Canary and Arrow don't even know each other, let alone, you know, 
being in love like they should be in what he remembers of the universe and uh aquaman isn't uh, you know is sort of like a cold character and batman is living in a world where there are three jokers and uh he's trying to get people to remember him to pull him out of the speed force which is a big wally west when he was the flash uh, he was the one that originally faced Zoom and everything, and so all of the getting pulled out of the Speed Force by uh, Karen, his uh, girlfriend, uh, was like a big deal. So he finally goes to her, and she doesn't remember him. And uh, so he goes to Barry Allen to sort of like say goodbye, and Barry remembers him at the last minute and like pulls him out of the Speed Force. And the la- as Wally's like sort of forgetting his omnipresent knowledge of the Speed Force, he's like, uh, somebody took... 10 years from the universe so and we pull out to mars and hear the last lines of the watchman uh that dr manhattan spoke speaks to adrian whether it says nothing ever ends and sort of like then you go back and you flip through the comic book and you realize that there are uh like uh pages set up in like the nine panel grid of watchmen and uh, they kill off uh pandora who was like the new 52 like multiversal threats that they could have used to undo it and she explodes in like a Dr. Manhattan blue and you real and uh, there's like an end scene where Batman's uh, digging through the bat cave trying to figure out what this like flash apparition was trying to tell him and he finds the comedian pin that's on the cover of Watchmen with the blood stain on it and so meta narrative wise what it's saying is like the new 52 is the Dr. Manhattan post-Alan Moore, post-Dark uh, Knight Returns, you know, grit, postmodern superhero uh, darkness-obsessed thing, and that's fundamentally wrong in the DC universe. So everything up to Flashpoint happened, Crisis on Infinite Earths happened, Flashpoint happened, but then Flashpoint didn't cause the New 52 like we've been told previously. Instead, Dr. Manhattan went in and created like a New 52 pocket universe and stole 10 years of time uh, from the DC universe. So now like original Superman's back, Wally West is back. Uh, he's going to like uh, reform the Teen Titans, which is going to be exciting and the DC universe is going to repivot around this idea of like bringing hope back to the DC universe and sort of in a meta way i guess destroying Dr. Manhattan and like the idea that that's a way to treat superheroes which is an interesting interesting narrative interesting enough that like in the middle of my boycott of Marvel <laughs> i'm now interested in picking up like a handful of DC titles and at least seeing where they're going with this Wonder Woman has a twin brother named Jason which has like a mythical basis, but we know nothing about him except that he exists now. So there's a lot of uh, interesting doors open by DC Rebirth uh, number one, but then also like this uh, sort of statement coming from DC Comics moving forward that uh, is really interesting. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk a little bit more about, I mean, probably going to transition straight from this into talking about what's going on over on the film side in DC. Um, But it's interesting to me, how long has DC Rebirth been in the works and how much do you think this message of hope can be tied to um, a pushback on the darkness in the DC films that we've seen? Um, I mean, it's been in the works long enough that 
if it is pushback, it's pushback to somebody seeing an early screening, somebody in DC seeing an early screening of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and being like, should we hedge our bets on this one? Because mm. like this one needs to be a you know billion dollar movie, and maybe we should offer an alternative to this that could also you know be the same thing if it needs to be. So like they're weaving in elements of the Watchmen universe, and it's not necessarily going to be a huge statement like I want it to be about hope. It could actually be a conversation about different directions to go. So I don't know if it's a direct result of it, but definitely the way they're pitching it now as like this, you know, hope moving forward. Here's our, you know, multi-diverse cast is uh, more reaction to trying to catch up to Marvel's sales than it is to a reaction to how the DC movies are going. What you described to me right now in, in issue number one sounds a little complicated in terms of, I don't know, these Watchmen Easter eggs that maybe the casual reader wouldn't get, or maybe they would. But do you think that DC Rebirth is a good launching off point for someone who's never read DC Comics? And like, is this a clean enough slate that they could jump in here and sort of uh, get their bearings pretty quickly? I mean, I'd like to know... I mean, I might be able to revisit this answer after I read some number ones, but right now, definitely, I think, yes. Uh, because the Watchmen Easter eggs are good, but if they're just MacGuffin placeholders. Like, there's something really smart about using Dr. Manhattan instead of making up a new vi- villain like Pandora was supposed to be, or use Pandora from, like, the failed New 52 uh, arc, I think. I think she was born in Convergence. I don't know. Don't hold me to that. I have a lot of catching up to do on this thing that we've now completely thrown away. Um, but because, you know, huge multiversal villain, like somebody stole 10 years from our timeline, um, is could be anything. Making it Dr. Manhattan is what adds, like, the meta text to it if you're, like, reading into it. But, like, as a story, uh, it puts us in a good place where the heroes in the New 52 haven't had a ton of time to evolve Uh, so like Jeff Johns does in a lot of his origin stuff and other DC lines he can cherry pick the pieces of continuity he needs to go forward to tell the particular stories and these sort of set up where those characters are going to be but they don't set up what the first stories are going to be and that's going to depend a lot on uh, execution across the various books I think going forward Okay, um, and so, yeah, this is a great place for us to pivot to talking about the larger DC universe, entertainment universe. Um, Jeff Johns, who is the chief creative officer of DC Entertainment, which meant he had um, a lot of oversight on DC television, has now been put into this um, position in regards to the films. Uh, this is a question we got from Chris Kay, and he said, just wondering how you feel about Jeff Johns stepping away from the comments to take a bigger role in the DC movies. I feel a bit less worried about the future movies, but would still be a be- feel better if they dumped Snyder. And this is coming from someone who liked Batman v Superman. Actually, like, like is too strong a word. Let me try that again. This is coming from someone who was okay with Batman v Superman. Uh, yeah, okay, so we are seeing the ripples of Batman v Superman doing very well at the box office, but having this huge stink on it in terms of critical reception and maybe lack of return audiences and, and lack of legs that some of the Marvel properties have seen. Um, you know, Ben Affleck was almost immediately promoted to um, 
executive producer on Justice League to try to, it sort of seems like another director, I mean, an Academy Award winning director, in fact, uh, having oversight uh, of this universe, uh, which maybe is not no longer safe in Snyder's hands. There is a rumor of reshoots on Suicide Squad to maybe add humor or maybe do something else. But um, and then you, you've seen some of their advertising, especially Suicide Squad pivoting towards humor um, in a way that they weren't before. So with Jeff Johns in this role, stepping away from what he's done a bit with the comics and maybe bringing some of the TV sensibility to the films, uh, we could see some big shifts. Oh, and also they fired uh, Seth Graham Smith from uh, directing Flash, which is great news in my book because that guy sucks. Uh, Dave, what do you think of all of this movement? Um, and and did I make any claims that are unsubstantiated? No, I don't think so. I think the one you left out is they're rolling back the involvement of Charles Roven, who has been the like overseeing production producer on DC Entertainment Films. Okay. He's not going to be doing that for anything that isn't already in production. All right. Um, they haven't full-on said that he's not going to do that anymore, uh, but he is not he's like not going to be on Aquaman and he's not going to be on the flash anymore for sure. So, and he's not on any of the future ones yet either. Uh, but that leaves suicide squad, justice league, uh, maybe justice league Two, depending on if they actually like fly him out or not, whatnot. But the rumor is there's already another guy on the ground. That's going to take his place, uh, overseeing, uh, you know, decisions on the ground for the studio. So there's like another layer of protection put in for, as this transition stuff is happening. But basically, uh, Batman v Superman did pretty well in the box office, but not as well as they projected it to do in studio. And it's a problem that Warner Brothers has been having basically since uh, the Harry Potter franchise ended is, you know, what's going to step forward and take the mantle of the major moneymaker. It's supposed to be DC. DC is not really performing where it's supposed to be. Um, they've listened to the complaints of a lot of creatives who said that the whole process of decision-making and green lighting has been weird. So they've shifted their production structure so that there's now like two production executives on each, uh, genre of films. So you have like someone taking over like, you know, all the Lego movies and someone taking over all the DC movies. And one of those two producers is Jeff Johns, uh, creating this new company, sub-company DC Films. So now Johns is in charge of the TV and the films and the comics. And really that's, that's... That's a lot of power for one person. That's a lot of power and it's just a lot of work for one person. Yeah. It's a Joss Whedon running three shows at a time on on a grander scale, uh, which might be how we burn out Joss Whedon at the MCU is trying to do this, <laughs> but that didn't even involve any comics. Because Kev, uh, Kevin Feige over at Marvel oversees the film... Um, and does not ha- oversee the comics at all. And then, d- what is his role in television? Um, he doesn't do anything in television, right? So that's uh, still the Marvel TV under uh, oh, oh Perlmutter, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, great under the Marvel Central, right? Right. Not, yeah, it's not directly Ike. So Jeff Johns has been hired to do the work of three individuals. Um, why do you think that they did that instead of? 
replacing him and the you know moving him to the films is fine but like maybe finding a replacement for him in the comic book world or in the tv world like move greg berlanti up to be like the grand czar of of dc television or something like that i mean i think that there's a lot of titles are going to be thrown around but just where the work goes is going to shake out as it shakes out um I don't think they're going to do this. Like, if Marvel were to put one person in charge of everything, I'd say, here comes Crossover City. But I think that Johns is more coming in to do, like, character refinement. Mm -hmm. Uh, There needs to be a Feige-esque person who could go out and stump for everything and have authority to stump for everything. And I think that's really smart in the sense that, you know, you have editors and chiefs at Marvel who could, you know, give interviews with comic sites about where the comics are going. And you have TV people who are, you know, showrunners who could talk about shows. And you have Kevin Feige who could represent all the movies. And they do that to varying degrees of success. Johns can make sure that whatever the, um, I guess whatever the zeitgeist needs to be to in order to receive a certain character in any medium he could sort of poke that around by giving proper interviews and access and stuff so it'll be interesting to see how he does on the pr side in the production side that's i think really still up in the air uh because it's sort of like a new production structure for warner brothers um i think that uh it's going to shake out on a lot of different fronts at the same time. So I don't think there's a ton of benchmarks as long as just like make it better. And I know they're starting to screen Suicide Squad. So we might see a little bit of movement in the next few months. But yeah, I don't know. All the title swapping is sort of like shifting shifting quicksand. And they really have until uh, Suicide Squad needs to present itself to the media as a completely finished film uh, to get all this somewhere where they're locked down because the 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 uh, the time the, the, the second the gates open on doing press on Suicide Squad everyone who's involved with the DC cinematic universe is open up to questions from the media and that's when we're going to figure out what, sort of where everything stands I think the, <laughs> the clock started ticking on solidifying the, the new direction I think it might be hard to get David Ayer 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 Ayer, Ayer, Suicide Squad director David Ayer on message when he was at Comic Con, um, he was so hyped about pumping Suicide Squad as like the dirtiest, grittiest, nastiness, and he was like taking these shots at Marvel, like like naming Marvel and being like, "This is a gang war, and this is our you know opening shot and all this stuff like that." And I was like, "Do you think DC wants uh, David Ayer saying this? Maybe I don't know." Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he handles the whole press situation around that. But yeah, so Suicide Squad's August fifth, um, and then we've got Wonder Woman uh, next June. And then Justice League the November after that. So I'm curious, when do you think, and since Wonder Woman was almost entirely done when Batman v Superman came out, I think that's true. Um, when do you, is it, is it going to be November 2017 in Justice League that we're first going to see maybe the new direction that they're pivoting? Or even after that, is it going to be Flash in 2018? Like, where are we going to see this? Where are audiences going to see a shift in tone play out? Um, uh, sooner than we think. Mm. I don't want to, this is not the spoiler section, but I've been very encouraged by what I've heard from people who've seen Suicide Squad. 
Okay. Um, I think whatever they did to bandage it up during reshoots, whether that be more action or making it funnier, has at least given it a more entertaining direction, if not a more fun direction. So I don't know if they have enough time because, you know, Justice League is shooting right now to shift the entire tone. But if I could have more fun at the movies, I'll be willing to, you know, play things out for sure. Excellent. So we are going to get to Apocalypse, uh, Exxon Apocalypse and Preacher, I promise. But we're still in we're still stuck in in DC gear because I want to talk about Flash. Uh, Flash had its finale, a very controversial finale. Uh, If you haven't seen The Flash, uh, I would skip ahead some uh, here. But this comes two weeks after me praising the flash for having the best episode. I think of it's in my opinion of its two season run. And then I wrote this whole piece about how I thought the DC films could learn from what the flash did. And then the like last two episodes of flash have been not great. And especially since they decided to do something very extreme in the finale. So like I said, skip ahead if you're not caught up. Um, but basically what happened is that Barry depressed by the death of his father and um, every, all the havoc that zoom had, had wreaked on his life uh, decided to uh, go back in time and now stop his mom from dying, which meant that another Barry that we see in flashback there vanishes and then we get uh you know most people are correctly pegging this as the flashpoint uh or something similar to the flashpoint storyline in the comics so dave do you want to explain what flashpoint is and then the possible ramifications of this across the four dc comic shows that are going to be airing monday tuesday wednesday thursday on cw starting in the fall So Flashpoint is Barry goes back and saves his mother and inadvertently creates an alternate universe with weird versions of our heroes and has to fix himself, uh, fix the entire timeline. And the way he supposedly fixed it was the new 52, but now we figured out uh, blah, 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 see earlier on this podcast. So the interesting thing about using this mechanic in a TV show that has a shared universe with other TV shows is you suddenly have this weird uh, reset button to present several episodes of alternate realities or just one episode or a partial episode or just a flash crossover with an alternate reality uh, that then gets righted and corrected when Barry eventually corrects his mistake. Uh, it was interesting to me in sort of telling that this is like the another, we're once again visiting the night that Barry's mom died. But when we saw it the first time, the Flash waved him off and said no at the in the season right. one finale. Yeah. And we didn't see that this time, which makes me think that we're eventually going to end up back there anyway. With the, with the Barry who shakes his head no. Because we've right. yet we've yet to see it from that perspective, right? Have we? Right, ha- we haven't seen the one that tells him not to kill right. his mother. Okay, or not to save so, his mother. Right, right. And he's the one that had the current version of the Flash costume, so we're at least close. We're not like a costume off. Okay. Uh, so I have a feeling we'll get back to that. It's interesting because since then, also, uh, Arrow has wasted the death of a character by not knowing who that character was and having only two episodes to set it up 
and then sort of like farted for a finale in some sort of weird way where they had like a whole bunch of really effective elements against so many overwhelming ineffective elements. And then Legends of Tomorrow, which did okay in the sense that it was a rollicking good time, but realized it needed to eject the Hawk people and introduce the Justice Society <laughs> of America in a cliffhanger. Uh, so all these places are, and obviously with Legends of Tomorrow having to do with time travel, they're sort of like primed to use this as a way to introduce new characters. Like the Justice Society had the uh, uh, older version of Jay Garrick that got introduced in the Flash finale. So I'd love for him to show up on other CW shows. But it has a potential to make a lot of things better, even though this one episode kind of was not fun. Here come the Flash police. Yeah. (laughs) They're coming to get me. Well, that's what happens when you stick up for your DC Universe heroes. It was, it was weird for Flash to spend so much time in the finale um, feeling like it needed to explain things when previously the show has been so good at emotionally just yeah. delivering on what we need to do. Uh, it's I, I look a lot more favorably on the first season where my only problem was like nobody was telling Iris what was going on. Yeah. Because they've like overcorrected and told everybody but like that's also become meaningless and the overarching plot made a villain so big that he overtook the possibility of having fun. Like even if you stop for an episode and have fun, you're like, well, but then there's also Zoom who's probably actually killing people somewhere. So it raised the stakes too high for Flash. This this is a problem. I mean, we'll get into this exact same thing with Apocalypse, but I think you're right. I I was watching this and also the uh, Arrow's abysmal finale just monstrously bad i thought and uh yeah just just seeing how these shows have gotten too wide in scope and how much better it is when it's like a villain threatening your city if you're a defender of a city it's better when it's like i don't know i think slade was the best version on arrow um and then i mean flash the the stakes were always higher than just the city but i think next season once barry has righted the flashpoint error if he can focus on a villain who's threatening the city then yeah then it just the stakes are lower and you can have a lot more fun one of my favorite uh, this is uh if you're playing the thought bubble or joanna podcast uh, drinking game this is where i mentioned buffy and uh, one of my favorite villains of all time is season three of buffy who's the mayor who was a threat and doing low level like a big threat but he had to cook all season like he wasn't he couldn't be the big threat that he needed to be until the end of the season so they were allowed to have there was smaller scale drama i mean that's the best version of a big bad but when you have someone like damien dark on arrow who's just like so all-powerful for too long uh you know and zoom too i mean zoom got more powerful at the end but like just too much too quickly um that yeah you you lose the opportunity for fun which for me is a big asset that the Flash has is their ability to have fun. Arrow hasn't been fun in I don't even know how long. Oh, oh no, it had B B person. Oh yeah, B person is pretty great. But where wither the salmon ladder on Arrow? Where's that That's version of Arrow? Where like we got to ogle Stephen Amell and like yeah, no, it's just been too much drama. Uh, I yeah, I, I well. Hope. If Arrow is DC TV's Batman, then Flashpoint Arrow would actually be his father because 
uh, Oliver would have died. What? And his father would have gone through. At least Bruce Wayne's father is Batman in the Flashpoint universe. Like, but how extreme do you think they're going to show these ripples? Like, uh, you know, are they going to assume that everyone watching... I mean, Flash is by far and away their most popular show in the ratings. So probably if you're watching Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, you're watching Flash. I don't know that the same can be said of Supergirl, because I don't know you know, what the CBS audience versus the CW audience was. But, um, you know, how much are they going to change everything since they're crossing over all these shows? They've already said that they're crossing over all four shows this fall. Uh, are we going to see a completely different version of all these different shows as a result of Flashpoint? And if so, that's one of the craziest, most ambitious television storytelling we've seen. I mean, Marvel's going to do something similar with the Defenders in terms of crossing over several different shows, but this is just like, I don't know, this is kind of bonkers. This is one thing for Buffy and Angel to cross over or Melrose Place and 90210 to cross over, but for four shows to cross over is crazy, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I... up until I watched their combined patting themselves on the back for getting Supergirl, all our superheroes are here trailer from Upfronts, uh, I thought that it would also be too ambitious. But think about how they shoved Legends of Tomorrow down our throats, uh, no matter what show you were watching. I hated in that. In effort to get us to watch that. Well, right. But maybe they learned something. But it does show that that's how they think they can go about things. So I think all these shows will immediately begin the process of weaving whatever crossover they have planned. So I wouldn't put, uh, you know, franchise-wide Flashpoint event uh, out of, like, uh, premiere week. Because the weird thing is... I mean, especially how they left Arrow. They left Arrow with, like, everyone leaving town, basically. Uh, Well, the cool thing is that you could... If you have four four shows uh, a week, uh, you only need to spend, what one week on a, a long storyline to give it time to breathe two weeks for it to be like the longest storyline four shows have ever attempted on television. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah. So the point being DC television, at least on uh, the CW, I mean, who knows what's happening in Gotham since I haven't watched that show in forever, but uh, you know, the, that is going to be insane. So we'll keep our eye on that, but I just hope it doesn't ruin flash, which is a great show or can be a great show. And so if Flash gets dragged down in the morass of trying to like buoy up Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow and Supergirl, I'll be disappointed. Um, I think you, but, but franchising television is an interesting thing that like, you know, as you say, you know, you're kind of a franchise expert. And of course this is how films are going. Like you can't just watch the Iron Man movies like, right, you have to watch the Avengers and Captain America and all of them because they're all like the same thing now. Um, so I guess that's what they're going for. It's also great to at some point, you know, we're going to have a show four nights a week to like watch. And whether or not it's good or bad, they're all like building to try to do something. And I'm very, very excited to see even if that falls apart at the very end. You know, no one's taking Flash season one away from me, so let's let's do it. All right, you're more optimistic than I am. Uh, let's talk about uh, comic book television. I am optimistic about. I'm gonna do a, a quick 
shameless self-promotion plug for an interview that I did with Noah Hawley on VanityFair.com, where he talked a lot about Legion and made me so excited for Legion. Uh, his take on what comic book television can look like sounds incredible to me. So that's over on VanityFair.com about Noah Hawley, who's the current showrunner of Fargo and has shot a pilot for Legion for FX. And we'll see if that gets picked up. Um, but currently airy television, my favorite comic book uh, installment that we saw this week was the preacher premiere, uh, which Dave talked a little bit about on the mother mothership podcast, fighting the war room, but we're going to go a little bit more in depth, especially because Dave has been doing a massive preacher reread. Um, so here's my first question for you, Dave. Yeah. One of the, in, in a crossover type plot line with fighting in the war room. Let me reference something that happened on that podcast, which is uh, one of David Ehrlich's biggest complaints about it was he felt like it didn't, it, it dropped us into the world too suddenly and didn't explain what was going on. And I think that's hard for you and I to assess because we've done the homework. Like, thanks to you, I did the reading and, and you've been doing the reading even more extensively recently. Um, so we know what's going on in the world of Preacher. But I also like to think that um, TV is better when it makes the audience do some work and presumes some degree of intelligence. You know, I'm surprised that David... Um, felt that way because the last thing I want is for preacher to over explain what's going on. So, so my question is, do you think that um, preacher is friendly to people who have no familiarity with the comic at all? Sure. Cause I think the comic operated in the same way, uh, but even on a grander scale, cause it was a comic book, but like, you're like, Three episodes in, you're on a road trip with people, you have no idea what happens, you don't know what the word is, and you have a vague idea that, like, the Saint of Killers exists, but you also have, like, these weird cutaways with angels talking very vaguely about things. Right. So it's like, the the comic book is the exact same way. I really like how they've uh, managed to nail the tone and I don't mind that they're sacrificing that for world building like a little bit more slowly. Mm-hmm. So like the, the the benefit of restructuring a whole bunch of uh, salvation stuff I'm assuming to Anvil because we're going to get the meat guy uh, played by Jackie Earl Haley. Od- um, Odin? Odin Quince... Quince... Yeah. Quince, yeah. Yep. Um, really, really easy to read. Not so easy to say. I'm not gonna make a causal casual error here. Um, <laughs> it's moving all that to stuff is I feel really good as it's going to um, up the idea that Jesse's seen suffering before we question so much about his backstory, which I feel has to be left until we actually go to Angelville or whatnot. But um, weaving like this sort of period in with the period that I think we talked about during our really early discussions about what we wanted from a preacher adaptation. So I want them to cut down a little bit on the uh, tulip disappears with Cassidy and gets all drugged out for a long period of time. Uh, And that's when Jesse was in Salvation. So moving Salvation to Anvil, I think, is a really smart storytelling. Uh, And I think it's... But it also means in order for this season to feel in line with what the series is going to be overall things have to go really bad in anvil 
and we have to feel the same vengeance for God that Jesse feels immediately in the comic books. Uh, because in the comics, uh, Genesis has a whole bunch of knowledge that just gives to Jesse, and he gives it expositorily. We've, uh, we're obviously past that point already. Um, so we're obviously going to go the direction of like voodoo and mushroom trips to get there, which is very exciting. <laughs> but we got to we got to build slowly to that. So basically, this one season has to you know introduce the aspects that are going to come in, but it has to make you hate God. So it's going to be interesting to see how it goes through it. Um, I talked to. My best friend, who is the one, like, along with you, who got me to finally read Preacher, and she finally saw the first episode. We've been talking about this adaptation all leading up to this. And she, I was nervous to see what she would think because she loved the comic so much. And she agrees with you that, like, the tone match is so perfect that it doesn't matter that this is, like, such, at, at least right now, such a loose adaptation. And I think I talked to... Um, you know, like the, the creative people behind it, Sam Catlin, who's a showrunner, you know, I talked to Garth Ennis about it. Um, and I really think this, this addition of Sam Catlin is so smart because he comes to the show, you know, Sam Catlin used to work at Breaking Bad and he comes to the show, not as a fan of the preacher of the comics. Like he hadn't read a single page when uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg approached him to work on the show. And so, and he has since read them and he's a huge fan of them, but what he's bringing is a showrunner's sensibility. A, a TV structural storytelling sensibility to this. He's not so precious with the source material as someone who's been a fan their whole life might be. And I think that's really to the show's benefit uh, because he's trying to come at it out of, from a place of like, you know, the cataclysmic event that happens in the first uh, issue of Preacher what if we got to know the stakes of that cataclysmic event before we did it? You know, like before something huge explodes, like let's get to know the stakes of that potential death toll, you know? And I think that's really interesting. So yeah, this whole season's going to be anchored in that town, which is a big departure, but um, I, I just think it's so smart and so good. And you and I have talked about this before because I know you're a huge fan of Hannibal, the TV show, and you and I have talked about, and I'm a huge fan of Fargo. We've talked about how sometimes the looser the adaptation, like the better chance um, a different medium has of matching tone. Um, you, you loved watching Hannibal and seeing how it did and didn't relate to the Thomas Harris novels. I love watching Fargo and see how it does and doesn't relate to the Coen brothers filmography, but also just matches the tone dead on. And I, I really think that's what we're seeing with Preacher. It's really fascinating to me. So. Yeah. It makes you question a whole bunch of auteur theory. That's for sure. <laughs> um, I love this tulip more than I loved comic book tulip. I love this Cassidy just about the same that I love that Cassidy. Um, I've seen the first four episodes, and so I agree. I, I understand how some people see Jesse as kind of a cipher in this first episode, or just so much more low key uh, than you know Cassidy and Tulip get to be. And uh, Dominic Cooper even said that to me. He's like, eh, I'm kind of jealous sometimes of like the extremes that they get to do and how I have to play it kind of straight. Uh, but I think you know we're definitely going to see more and more. Um, you know, as Jesse develops his powers uh, over over the season. So, are they going to how how, how recently have you read the uh, the salvation stuff of the comic? Um, I it's been a while. So Odin, what's his face? Yeah, 
super racist. Yeah. And Jesse becomes the sheriff and has like a black uh, deputy. And that's how they like sort of bring the clan in for a little while. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they like they're gonna just loop tulip into that. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know. Uh, That's the the other thing about like the comics reflecting what uh, the South was like in 1996, right? So it is like really racist, uh, and it's mocking it for sure, which you know comes across in the comic tone, and hopefully will come across. Uh, in the show tone, but I'm interested to see how far they take it uh, with the casting decision being what it is and Anvil sort of being a salvation stand-in. I mean, he's... <sighs> okay. Let's... Can we do some crazy speculation about the, the ending of Preacher for people who've read the comic books? Uh, or is that too spoilery? No, I think that it's speculation based on the books. Skip ahead, guys, if you want to. Go ahead. Go for it. Okay. So... Uh, the one prediction I have is that Saint of Killers comes the last episode after these two angel guys fail to do things off because that kicks off the road trip and gets us out of Anvil, even if there is an explosion. But then you're basically at the beginning of issue one at the start of season two, which would be pretty cool in terms of story economy. But the question I have, I have for you is, are they going to still have are they going to put Jesse's mother in Anvil? Um, like they put her in Salvation because that's also part of that storyline. No, he reunites with his mother. right. No, I don't think so. Um, and oh, wait, she's mentioned. Okay, I'm not going to go into it. Um, ooh, ooh, you know things. Oh, ooh. Um. Odin, what's weird is to see sort of like the vestigial tale of their original adaptation idea because, so Jackie Earl Haley, who plays Odin Quincannon, is he in the pilot episode? Uh, no, they yeah. just have a close-up on a model that has his name on it. Okay, because um, he's great and he's in subsequent episodes. But Elizabeth Perkins is in the first episode, just a shot of her. And originally she was supposed to play Odin's wife, but I don't, but she's not in any of the other episodes. So I feel like they were going to do something different with Elizabeth Perkins and the guy from Raising Hope, like the main kid from Raising Hope, are both in the pilot episode in a shot in the church. They have no lines. They're just in a shot in the church and then never seen again. (laughs) And then you've got Jackie Earl Haley in as Odin Queen Cannon, and he's great, as Jackie Earl Haley always is. Um... So uh, I'll be interested to someday learn what they changed. I mean, they already have said that publicly, that they changed a lot after they shot the pilot. Um, yeah, but anyway, um, crazy. Or you think that you think they cut out the Nazi dominatrix? Or saving it, question mark? I don't know. Hmm. Um, the Saint of Killers, I'm 95% sure we will see this season. Um, I'm curious if they're, well, he's like one of the key elements that you can't, well, I know, but the question is like, are you going to see him this season? Are you going to see him next season? I believe you're going to see him this season. Uh, are we going to see the ghost of John Wayne is a question I have. Oh man. I feel like if you, yeah, I mean, all these elements have to be like carefully, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but you're going to follow me on it. I'm, I'm ready. When was the last time you saw a Kung Fu Panda? Oh, I recently watched, like, the first 30 minutes of it. Okay, that movie, 
uh, spools out its animation techniques really, really smartly. So it knows it's got anthropomorphic animals that have to do kung fu. So it like goes out of its way to do a comedy beat and not show you it until like the villain escapes and then you're like wowed by it. And then you're shown all the animals as they team up, but you know, Poe doesn't have time and then Poe trains and then he faces off, but like learns his panda style is better than the thing that he like learned. So it's like they sat down and they're like, here's the things that we could do that are really cool. And here's the order that we could do them in. I'm hoping that Preacher finds like the right alchemy order of things they could do really cool to have every one of those things hit with like the gravitas it's going to have to hit for us to be invested in these things for like the six or seven seasons that their storylines take to resolve themselves. And I mean, I think that that's what Sam Catlin is there to do is to make the judgment call and when to introduce what, I mean, Seth, Seth and Evan have really good storytelling instincts as well. I'm not like discounting their input, but they're, a, hey, Seth Rogen was in Kung Fu Panda, so that's true. Sure he knows exactly what to do. <laughs> but they're A, busy, and B, you know, Sam really does have, like, the TV bona fides uh, to bring to this. Um, something I was going to say about another reason, my favorite theory about why they're lingering in the town of Anvil uh, is to something that they keep saying, uh, you know, they said so frequently and so word for word that it's like clearly a company line that they all agreed on, which is we decided it'd be silly to have a show called preacher and not have the guy actually be a preacher. So we're going to get a season or so of Jesse actually trying to be a preacher. And, um, that we, do you remember what that was in the comics? What pushed him over the edge of what? So the comic starts off and he gets in like a bar fight. Yeah, yeah. And then he wakes up and he goes into the thing and then like Genesis comes in. Right. Later in the series, it's revealed why he like suddenly went from normal preacher to getting in a bar fight. And it was Bill Hicks died. Oh, yeah. See, these are the weird like pop cultural updates. I mean, I don't actually, they're not going to do that. What pushed him over the edge was, you know, the the kid coming to him, right? Like, right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just a good sign. And, like, there's also, like, long monologues about very specific times in, you know, American myth history. And I'm interested to see if they update those as well. So, like, now someone talks about the Internet and then, like, gets punched in the face or something. It's going to be it's gonna be interesting to see what little yeah. television-specific tweaks enrich it. Yeah, Seth and Evan said, you know, our spaces uh, background in the comics is that um, you know, he shot himself in the face because of Kurt Cobain. And that is not the case in the TV show. Cause like Evan Goldberg was like, do kids even know who Nirvana is anymore? Like, I just didn't think that that was a good cultural touchstone, you know, for this modern teenager to use. So it's they. I don't know what the reason is, but it's not Nirvana. So I think they are very assiduously wiping some of the 90s uh, pop culture stuff from it or giving it a good update. Um, but, but my theory, my grand theory about, like, I've been just very curious about whether or not Preacher will be as big of a hit as The Walking Dead. Obviously, that's what everyone wants. But is Preacher ever going to be that much of a hit, given all the extreme things that happen? I mean, extreme things happen in The Walking Dead, but it's generally kind of actually a conservative story. You've got some, like, gay keep, gay people sprinkled in there, but um, 
mostly I don't see a problem with that hitting with middle America, but with preacher, you know, and by middle America, I mean a really, really reductive version in terms of like people who, um, religion is very important to them and might see a story where God is the worst and gone, um, as too sacrilegious for them to loop into. And so I think my, my theory is that the reason we're going to see preacher, uh, Jesse be a preacher for a season is to put him in a position of being someone grappling with their faith and that, um, people of, of, the United, these United States of America and the globe, like most religious people grapple with their faith from time to time. And so to see Jesse want to believe and struggling to believe and struggling to, um, come to grips with his faith, I think is a storyline that will resonate with people and get people on board with him more than like, um, let's <laughs> blow something up in the first episode, you know, like, that that might be alienating and this might be just a warmer, a, a gentler, lukewarm bath to get into before you turn up the whole thing to a boil. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I was saying, this whole first season is like getting us on the side of hating God because it's, you're not going to take it. Like, I think Garth Ennis said when you start, when he was given the option to do like a creator own book and like he could do anything, he was nervous about doing Preacher because of like the scope that it was in his mind. You know, like, it's sort of this weird conversation about, you know, if faith and love should really be what we give back to a creator that's cruel to us. And I really want it to succeed so it could do what the comics do, but I think the cool thing about Preacher is it can scale because of how abstract a lot of its ideas are. So, like, the Saint of Killers is a cool idea, and it could be an idea you spend a million dollars an episode bringing to life, or it could be a guy in, you know, normal costuming department stuff that just, you do the right casting and light him correctly, and he does the same thing that for serves the same story function. Like, a lot of the Preacher comic is Jesse and somebody else having a long conversation about something, and occasionally we get glimpses of it. So the show doesn't have to be the Monument Valley showdown once a season uh, in order to be good if it learns how to, you know, sort of mix and match what it's saying. It could go completely off the reservation uh, and uh, still be a preacher adaptation that um, finds a way to, I guess, not... Instead of trying to convert people to preacher, it tries to convert the purists to what it is, would be, I guess, the ultimate goal. The preacher purists to what it is? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Instead of, like, chasing a new audience and being like, no, this is a comic from the, the like, 90s that you should have liked be like no this is a show that is about this conversation that we should be having with this particular tone i think it's so great i agree with you and i really hope they succeed i hope the show is huge like whatever adaptation choices they make in order to appeal to a wider audience not in like a pandering way but just sort of like open the do- open the conversation up to as many people as possible the more we'll all benefit because then we get I don't know, five seasons of Preacher versus like one sad aborted season of Preacher. You know, like that's what I want. I want five seasons of this show. Probably, <laughs> probably max. That's probably all I want, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. So you could spend so much time in all of the little sidelines. So like I was thinking about, like I've, I've just reread the entire Preacher run straight through. I haven't gone back and done it like Saint of Killers trade paperback and stuff, but there's like so much 
so much story. If this show becomes a hit and they get a lot of budget and they are like, how can we pad this out? I think the places it could go could be really cool. But it already, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what their budget is, but it already looks amazing. Does it not? I mean, like you see some, you see some budget uh, shortcuts, like, you know, when Tulip brings down a helicopter or whatever, she does so from the point of view well, I mean, of yeah. two kids locked in a storm cellar. But that's always, that's smart. it's so smart. It's always going to be better to do that than like however much budget you have to actually bring a helicopter down. Like that was so smart. And I didn't, it, it didn't bother me for a second that it happened. And, um, it's the opening that, I liked with the space stuff sort of done in the, the yeah the, TV the, ch- the cheesy t- yeah sci-fi yeah yeah I really like that and I like that opens up a whole bunch of things like if Jesse ever needs to learn about his father's past in Vietnam which maybe that's not important or maybe it is like all the sorts of stylistic things are open so I'm I'm very glad with the statement that the pilot made I just hope they uh. Hope they stack the dominoes in the right order. A very weird thing, and like, and if someone's listening to this and was in the at the Paramount Theater in Austin when I saw this premiere um, back in March, um, can contradict me. But I think in the original flashbacks that I saw, Dominic Cooper was playing his father, like he was playing Jesse's father, and it <laughs> and it was like weird and disorienting, and I think did not test well with people. Like that they didn't understand that this was a different preacher. And so it's a they, nice throwback they, to the comics though. Yeah. They look exactly the same. Exactly. So I think they recast. I think that's true. I'm like eighty five percent sure that that's the case. Like when I rewatched the pilot uh that AMC released, uh I was like, Hey, I'm pretty sure that was Dominic Cooper in the flashback. But anyway. Um yeah, I'm I'm really high on Preacher. I'm so I'm so high on it. I'm so excited. I think the casting is just so freaking on point. Uh, I'm intrigued to learn uh, about these show-only characters, and I'm really hoping that, you know, if not the David Ehrlichs of the world, then, like, you know, as you say, at least plenty of people who who know not one single thing about the comic can come to embrace the show. I, I really hope so. And as promised, that does it for part one of Thought Bubble, issue 41. Part two, which includes all the Marvel stuff, will be coming later this week. So be on the lookout for that, because X-Men Apocalypse is a lot of movie. You can follow Joanna on Twitter at JoeWroteThis. You can follow me on Twitter at DA70. You could find the rest of the episodes of this podcast at fightinginthewarroom.com slash comics. And we'll be talking to you again soon in your ear holes. When she left him for someone, she left behind. And he cried like a baby. He screamed like a panther in the middle of the night. Saddle his pony. He went far.